Guys, one of the things that affects our lives very deeply, and I see it over and over again, is that we've got some hurt or resentment in our lives, and it ends up controlling our whole lives. It's amazing how uh, sometimes uh, we so much want to be delivered from something that our parents did to us decades ago or years ago, and uh, the harder we try, the, the more we're affected by it. And uh, some people who think they've really become really different from their parents and they're reacting against them, the reaction is still their parents controlling them. And they're being controlled by feelings of revenge or anger or resentment. And it's a real, uh, real mystery how the Lord uh, can take that away from us gradually, and not perfectly, not ever forever, but uh, until we get home. But it's important that we deal with these issues of anger and revenge. So many men's lives are just controlled by it. And what's remarkable in the two chapters before us today is how David takes a tremendous offense that committed against him and uh, doesn't allow it to cause him to become like the one who is perpetrating evil against him. That's always the danger. You know, we always uh, take such delight when, when the, the bad guy is caught and receives his comeuppance, you know, when we pull Saddam Hussein out of the ground and a few days later give him a quick trial and hang him on a rope, uh, everybody feels so much better. And then, of course, uh, when uh, uh, Osama bin Laden uh, was destroyed, uh, just break out of a huge party right around the White House and all over the country and people celebrating. Why? Because we got our revenge. We got the guy. Uh, people feel safer. Uh, so that's always the tendency of us when we've been offended, especially if it's a personal offense, and then if it's an injustice that's committed against you, and then it's something deeply personal to you, something that affects something you care about a lot, like your nation or your wife or your children, uh, you find these, these feelings of anger and resentment and revenge well up, and they're very hard to deal with. But they must be dealt with, and David deals with them in a magnificent way, and I want us to take a look at it, because he's He's really the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ who does it in an even more magnificent way uh, in his life and ministry. Well, let's take a look at these two chapters. We'll read them separately, and they have a lot in common. But it's important that we have two, sort, two separate stories that tell us some, teach us some of the same general uh, lessons, uh, which, of course, tells us that it's all the more important. Now, we're going to skip chapter 25 because that chapter deserves its own treatment. Uh, David and Abigail, and we'll look at that uh, after Christmas. But let's take a look at chapters 24 and 26, beginning with chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men 
with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for He is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, he will, will he let him get, go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then, David, then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Okay, let's uh, notice in this chapter the overarching lesson for us is that our enemies provide us an opportunity to display godly character. Our enemies provide us an opportunity to display godly character. You say, yeah, I think my enemies provide a lot of things for me, like opportunity to take their neck off. But no, it provides you an opportunity to display godly character. And here we see, when David's confronted by his enemy, this deep character of David, things that would not have been revealed about him otherwise, come out for all of us to see. It's true with you. When you're facing a situation where the natural reaction would be anger and revenge and uh, dominating somebody or taking a pound of flesh from them, uh, your real character is right there displayed. Now, verses 1 through 6, here's what we see about David and about everyone who walks with the Lord. We do God's will God's way. We do God's will God's way. David knew what God's ultimate will was, that he would be the king. That he had clearly in his mind. But David had a lot of other things in his mind. And that was the, the word of the Lord and all of the law of God. And there is a law about how you treat someone who's anointed, who is a king or a priest or a prophet. And David was 
concerned to keep that law as well. Look back, for example, keep your finger there and look back in Exodus chapter uh, 22. And that would be on page 180. And on, in Exodus 22, there are several commandments. Well, look at the laws about social justice at the end of 22. And in verse 28, you read this, You shall not revile God, nor curse a ruler of your people. So David knew from knowing the law of Moses that you must not curse the ruler, you must not lay your hands on the Lord's anointed. You must not undermine Him. Uh, You must show respect and honor. Now notice in this text that in verse 2, Saul takes 3,000 of his elite troops, 3,000 chosen men, and he's got five times as many men as David does. And he's now pursuing David, and we've seen this happen over and again. Now he's being pursued again. David only has 600 men. They haven't had the privileges of being trained like these elite troops. Saul's got him outnumbered five to one. And Saul has to go to the bathroom. Now, folks, there never was a bowel movement who affected so many people for so much as this bowel movement. And you may think that bowel movements are just times when God has nothing to do with you nor with history. God is involved in your bowel movements. Right here you see it. God, if there's one thing that's clear in this text, God is sovereign over every aspect of life. So the very potty that you choose is in God's sovereignty. It's amazing. David is sitting there hiding, and here comes Saul wanting his privacy, not attended by Abner or any of his other commanders or doesn't have any you know, parliamentarians or sergeant-in-arms with him or anybody. Uh, he's just all by himself to go take a poot. And David goes... I can't believe this. (laughs) No, that's what David's men said. Uh, It's amazing how God is sovereignly uh, at work. And, of course, any of those 600 men, and you know his men uh, were pretty rough. We've already seen that. They were men who had grievances with the the Saulite administration, uh, who uh, resented this Benjamite who who had taken over, and uh, they gathered around David, so they were probably pretty angry, violent men. But any of them that had the least shred of theology in their mind would have said, God has put this man right in our hands. This is clear. Nothing could be clearer. And yet you see David restraining himself. Uh, He speaks of the Lord's anointed. And uh, these men are saying to him, uh, he says, look at what they say in verse 4. Here is the day. You can just see them. This is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. They're just so happy. They're going to be delivered. They're going to be safe. They're going to get rid of Osama bin Laden as far as they're concerned. And they're saying to him in verse 4, Here is the day which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So they even take something that may very well have been an oracle of the Lord. I don't know. Uh, that one day David would would have his enemies in his hands. And certainly that sounds right. But David had all the word of the Lord in his mind. And you must have all the word of the Lord in your mind. You don't just pick out a few verses, take them out of context, and then wrongly apply them and say, I obey the Lord. Or you don't just look at your circumstances and say, well, clearly the Lord has put this in front of me. 
a free trip to Las Vegas. I can gamble my savings away. You, know, you, don't, you don't look at history as it happens and immediately draw conclusions that the Lord is doing something. Now, what you do is you look at history through the grid of all the Word of God. That's how you determine meaning in history. It's through the grid of every word that comes out of God's mouth. That's what David is carefully doing, even amidst his own anger. And just think about the things here that uh, would have made him angry. Uh, He had his own family being pursued by Saul. David had to take his family and take them over to the Moabites to protect them because Saul was so wicked he was going to He was going to destroy David's family. David was the one anointed to be king, and everybody, including Saul's son, knew it clearly. And we see here in this text, even Saul knew it. And Saul's trying to destroy him. Saul's trying to lay his hands on the Lord's anointed. So David, it seems, could clearly say, well, if if these are the rules of the game, I'm going to lay my hands on the anointed of the Lord. We're both anointed. He's trying to kill me. It seems to me that that changes all the rules and I should try to kill him. You know, we've had an instance of this, haven't we? Even in our national life where we're wondering about what's appropriate with torture or what is torture. Well, uh, so often the rationale that's given from men who go to church, just like many of us, is that we say, well, you know, uh, 9-11, the buildings came down and we were terrified And we knew we had to use any means to get the information that we needed. Notice how differently David approaches his situation. He is being chased by this man with 3,000 elite troops. He's got 600 people he cares about. He's got his family he cares about. He's got himself he cares about. And he's got Saul now with an opportunity in the normal rules of engagement in warfare. He could easily take his life. But David is not willing to justify any means because he has a a godly end. The end does not justify the means. Let me tell you what justifies the means. What justifies the means is the Word of God. What does God have to say about it? So it doesn't, in one sense, it doesn't matter what techniques our enemies use toward us. We don't have the same weaponry. The weaponry we have is what God gives us and allows for us. And we train ourselves and discipline ourselves, even at the risk of our lives, to stick to our character. Now, that's true with national character. Once you lose your character, there's nothing much left to defend anyway. It's not much worth fighting for, except to just defend your family's lives. But to defend an ideal, you've got to have ideals. And you have to live by them even when it's tough. And it's certainly true for churches and it's true for men that the only time your character counts is when someone is unjustly, personally, deeply offending you and hitting below the belt. Now we'll see if you hit below the belt. And David wouldn't. It's a good reminder. David would not take an ethical shortcut to accomplish a godly goal. You know somebody else like this? Remember Jesus? Right at the beginning of his ministry, Remember, he's baptized. What's the first thing that happens? The Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness to confront the adversary, Satan. And you remember Satan said to him, Hey, Jesus, we can can boil this, we can lay aside these three years of of suffering and passion and and your death on the cross. We can just lay that all aside. It would be really simple. Look, bow down and worship me, and I'll give you all the nations. I'll just give them to you, as though Satan had them to give. 
It was a lie, but it was very tempting. You can avoid all that pain and suffering. You can avoid the cross if you just bow down. I'll give you the nations. And Jesus said, the, the Bible teaches us, Deuteronomy that some of us studied a few years ago, the Bible teaches us that you shall worship the Lord your God and Him alone shall you serve. And Jesus gave back the, the word right to Satan, just pierced him with it. The sword of the Spirit, remember? Ephesians 6, you, know, you take up the armor of God, you've got the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God, and that's what Jesus used. I will not justify the end, which is that I would rule over all the nations by using the means that you're suggesting. I'm going to use the most painful means. I'm going to lay down my life and shed my blood. That's the means we're going to use because it's the means that pleases my Father in heaven and is in accordance with the Word of God. So we're brought these temptations constantly and in our minds we can justify our reactions because of the evil of the one perpetrating injustice against us. But this is an opportunity to display our character that we will do God's will God's way. Now, notice something very important in the next verse, verse 7. And that is that we insist that others do God's will, God's way. Why do I say this? Well, we get a classic example in politics where the candidate wants to appear to be playing by all the rules and to be above all the pettiness and to to follow all of the intentions of the law. And so he is squeaky clean. But he just turns his back while some of his troops figure out other ways to raise money and put ads that are illegal and say lies about the opponent. And he just turns his back and lets it happen. That happens all the time. And sometimes in business. You know, you don't want to get your hands dirty. You want to keep your record squeaky clean. But you just don't ask too many questions about about how this deal's going down. Just don't ask, they say. Just don't get involved, boss. Just let us handle it. That's the opposite of what David is doing. The wording here is very strong, where it says, so David persuaded his men. Let me tell you what it says there literally in the Hebrew. David tore apart his men with his words. He tore them up. Now, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is there are a bunch of knuckleheads, every one of them, 600 violent men. So David's going to have to talk to them real straight. And I don't know what all he said. I imagine he said, you lay your hand on Saul, I'm laying my hand on you. Because actually David did that later. When people laid their hands on the Lord's anointed, including on Saul, the man who finally took Saul's life, David took his life. So believe me, David meant what he was talking about, and he communicated it to his staff. He communicated it to people who were working for him. He communicated it to people who were going to do things on his behalf. And he said, let's have it on no uncertain terms. This is the way we operate. God is king of Israel. I'm his servant. And you're his servant too. And here's how we're going to do it. He tore them up with his words when they suggested that he go ahead and and, uh, take Saul's life. So David took responsibility for his behavior and everybody under his influence. Now, obviously, you can't control everybody under your influence. But you can control your influence. And you can control the environment that you're setting. You can control the expectations that you communicate. And you can control how often you communicate them. And it, it doesn't do us much good in Abu Ghraib when the commanding officer says, Well, I didn't know that happened. Well, yeah, you didn't know it happened because you didn't ask. 
And you didn't want to know what was happening. And so we tortured people because the commanding officer didn't want to know what was happening in her own troops. So there's no excuse. Uh, we're, if you have somebody res- that you're responsible for, then you, you're responsible for training them. Now, once again, it doesn't mean that there are never outages. But you know what I'm saying. We have sneaky ways of denying that we permitted something or that we knew about something. We all have ways of doing that. And then secretly, we kind of snicker and, and I'm glad it took place. David wasn't like that. David wanted the Word of God to rule everything he had anything to do with. Then notice... Uh, C, verse 8, <clears throat> we humble ourselves. If we're walking with the Lord in the midst of dealing with someone who's really our moral inferior, you're dealing with someone who is your moral inferior, but in God's economy, either in church or state or family or school or business, He is your superior. And notice that David bows down to the one who is his civic superior and he does it in several ways notice that he says my lord the king so david uses language that's very respectful and then in the latter half of verse 8 he bows down he pays homage and then if you look in verse 14 he calls himself a dead dog and a flea by comparison david Or he says, Saul, why are you wasting your time on a dead dog and a flea? What are you chasing? I'm I'm completely harmless to you and far less powerful than you. Of course, we've already found out that Saul with his 3,000 troops is nothing compared to God. (laughs) He's he's completely helpless uh, when God's at work on David's behalf. Then notice, though, fourthly, we speak the truth. So just because we're not wreaking vengeance and we're not using evil methodology and we're not inappropriately violent and just because we bow down and give respect where respect is due, we don't wilt or become like a doormat. We don't refuse to tell the truth. And so often men will try to simply appease the authorities or appease the superior by pretending to go along with him, by trying to flatter him, by not maintaining justice and the truth in our relationship. David doesn't do that. David is willing to complicate an already conflicted relationship for the sake of truth and justice. So you see the beautiful combination of not wrongly asserting yourself or taking advantage of someone, but also not surrendering the truth. If there's one thing that God's men are supposed to be, it's men who represent the truth. We represent reality. We speak the truth in every situation as we see it. And we especially maintain the Word of God and how it applies to life. That's the reason you're here. You're a spokesperson for the living God. So you never surrender truth. Now, this doesn't mean that you always tell everything you know in every situation. Sometimes it's appropriate, as it was with Jesus before Pilate, just be quiet. No, don't say a word. But even when you're quiet, that doesn't mean that you're surrendering truth or that you're cowardly and not afraid to put the truth out if it's appropriate. No, it just simply means you're trying to discern, is this the appropriate moment to communicate this appropriate truth? 
And we have to ask God for wisdom on those things. But notice what David does. He says, Saul, you're listening to people who are telling you lies. Now David knew that was true. He knew it from Jonathan. He knew it because he had been in Saul's court. He knew how these men acted. And he could see what Saul was doing. But Saul, you're listening to bad advisors. Now David was respectful toward the king. And he didn't say, Saul, it's all your fault. It's true, but David didn't say that. David said something else that was true. You got lousy advisors and you're listening to them. And you're responsible for whom you listen to. A president can have lousy advisors, but it's his responsibility, first of all, to pick them and then to decide whether he does what they advise. You have lawyers and doctors and you have people, educators, who are advising you. And you can't blame them for decisions you make. You don't always take people's advice. You ask their advice and you pay for their advice, but you don't always take it. You only take the advice that you believe pleases the Lord. And David says to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say David seeks your harm? This day your eyes have seen it. You've seen it with your own eyes, Saul, how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And you know that my men were telling me to kill you, but I spared you. And here's the reason. You're the Lord's anointed, and I'll not put out my hand against you. So it doesn't matter how much you offend me. It doesn't matter how wicked you are. You can be assured of this. What restrains me is the Word of God. It's not because I like you. It's not because your son and I are good friends. It's not because I don't want to cause a stink. It's because of the Word of God. So you can be assured of my character. I should be predictable to you. All you have to do is read the book. And that's the standard I want to live by. Now, David doesn't always do that. We'll see later. He commits adultery and murder in one big event. He violates the Word of God, but he repents toward it. So you can predict when David violates the Word of God, you're going to see some, some very impressive repentance on his part. And that's what David is communicating in this situation. We speak the truth. And when our oppressor has been listening to bad advisors and doing wicked things and acting unjustly toward us, we'll say so. So it doesn't keep us from appealing to the court on our behalf. And you'll notice Paul does this. And he does it especially when the welfare of his brothers and sisters in Christ is at stake. So he'll plead his case in court primarily because he doesn't want the court to treat the other Christians in that community the same way. So in Philippi, for example, he requires they come into the prison, that the officials come to the prison, get him, and give him a decent escort out of there so that it displays to the entire Philippi community that Christians are not to be treated this way. They have not violated the law of Rome. So when there's an issue of justice for the community, it's very important that you live, you appeal your own case and demand that the authorities behave themselves properly, whether it's church or family or state. But he speaks the truth. And then fifthly, E, in verse 11, uh, we say here, define our divine authority. That should be, we defend our divine authority. We defend our divine, divine authority. So Saul, the big powerful ruler, is trying to ignore David's divine appointment as, as the next king. He's trying to strip David of his divinely given authority. And David will not allow that to happen as far as he has anything to do with it. Not because he's self-centered and narcissistic, but because once again, the Lord's done it. 
And David's not going to allow anything to be denied that the Lord has done. So David says, see my father. Now look at the word my father. You see the significance of that? It's affectionate on one hand and respectful because a king was known as the father of his people. George Washington is the father of our nation. So my father. But it also is suggesting that David is the next in line to receive the kingdom. I'm one of your sons. (laughs) And I'm the one who's going to receive the kingdom. So David here says, see the corner of your robe in my hand. Now, what was the significance of that? You remember up earlier in verses 1 through 6, David felt very badly about tearing that robe off. And did that seem odd to you? It would seem that David should have felt very good about it. He restrained himself. He didn't tear his neck off. He just didn't tear his head off. He just tore the robe. But David felt badly about it. Why did he feel badly? Because the robe was a symbol of Saul's kingship and his authority, his majesty. And David was taking a piece of the majesty for himself. David felt badly about it, thought maybe he overreacted, but here he holds it up. He says, my father, I've taken this piece off the robe. He's basically saying to him, not only is this a sign that I restrained myself and didn't kill you in the dark when I could have, but I've got a piece of the divine majesty myself. I've got a claim on the throne. So he's defending his own authority here. David felt badly, but he also used it to explain to Saul that David could not compromise when the Lord had called him to duty, that he would fulfill his duty whether Saul wanted him to or not. Now, F, verses 12 through 15, we trust the Lord. We trust Him for several things. First of all, when you're dealing with someone who has perpetrated evil against you, you're seeking to display godly character, You have to trust the Lord for judgment. David says, may the Lord judge between me and you. Saul was being unreasonable and he was being unjust. What could David do to rectify it? Nothing. Let the Lord judge between you. And of course, what this requires is great patience. And David's going to have to wait for a few more years before judgment comes out onto Saul. You'll have to wait until Jesus comes back before judgment will ultimately be executed against those who have persecuted you. It requires great patience. But you must call the judge to be the judge. You don't take this into your own hands. Secondly, we trust the Lord for vengeance. David says in that same verse, May the Lord avenge me against you. That's a pretty bold thing to say. You see how clear David is in his judgment? Saul, you are the perpetrator of evil. And I'm calling upon the Lord to avenge me against you. I'm not going to lay my hands on you. You're the Lord's anointed. But the Lord will lay His hands on you. And I'm trusting Him to do so. So David was really clear about it. These are very strong words. So you can see in the midst of his humility and his submission to divinely given authority, whether it's in the state or the church or family or wherever it is. You give submission to the authority that's there, but you never surrender the truth of the situation. And in this case, it was appropriate for David to say it. So he's calling upon the Lord to wreak vengeance. Now leave your finger there and turn to, uh, to Romans chapter 12, and this will be on page 2179. 2179, Romans 12. And look at this teaching on what a Christian looks like from the Apostle Paul. He says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. 
Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. This is verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. That takes great discipline, gentlemen. 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, even the Caesars. Look at verse 19. This is the key verse. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. You see the word never? Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Folks, there's going to be vengeance. Vengeance like you've never seen before in your life. It's going to be a huge display of God's vengeance. So it's not as though we're sweeping this under the rug. It's not as though God doesn't care that someone dealt with you unjustly. He's just simply saying, that's my business, not your business. When you take vengeance into your hands, you are now acting like God. And you're right back into the Garden of Eden where the serpent is tempting Eve and saying, oh, you'll be like God. So you want vengeance? Okay, fine. Now you're God. And you're no longer walking with the Lord. David said, that is not my job. But I'll tell you this, Saul. You're going to meet him. And I know he's going to avenge me. And I'm just leaving it there. So David used words to be clear about his position. But he didn't use his power, which was the power of violence, to take Saul's life, nor to disobey the Lord in any other way. Now, uh, look at G, verses 16 through 22. We accept reality wisely. Now, why do I say it this way? Because the reality is Saul is sick. He's a sick man. He's a paranoid narcissist and a bunch of other things that I'm sure you psychologists could give me words for. I mean, this guy is messed up. Look at this in his syrupy, saccharine voice in verse 16. Is this your voice, my son, David? Yeah, your son, David. You're trying to kill him over and over again, and you'll keep trying to kill him. Saul lift up his voice, and look at this, with tears. Oh, don't you love it? Psychopaths, or rather sociopaths, really know how to cry. Have you ever dealt with a sociopath? Man, they're really, 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 really sorry that they got caught. And they, they'll cry buckets of tears that they got caught. Saul got caught. He is really, really sorry. It's a bunch of BS is what it is. And David has to accept it. That's what it is. And he says, you're more righteous than I. True words were never spoken by a sociopath, narcissist, paranoid. But they're true words. David did repay him good for evil. Even Saul can see it in his moment of accidental insanity. And look at verse 20. He says, I know that you shall surely be king. He knows it. You say, If he knows it, why isn't he aligning with what he knows God is doing? It's because he's crazy. He's evil. He's wicked. He's opposing what he knows God has already ordained. Nuts. 
And then look at verse 21. He not only has an insincere apology and a reluctant admission of David's kingship, but verse 21, he has a selfish request. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, take a holy vow, would you please, that you will not cut off my offspring after me. Well, David had already committed that to Jonathan, frankly, so it was no big deal for David. But Saul's motives are just intensely selfish. And you know what? David has to accept it. What can you do about it? I I can't get inside Saul's heart and make him a holy man. And it probably would be a waste of my time if I said, Saul, I don't believe a word you're saying. I just take his words, but I do it wisely. And what do I mean by wisely? Well, look at the very last verse of that section, verse 22. So David swore this to Saul. Why did he swear it to Saul? Because it was right to do. He had already sworn it to Jonathan. David had every intention of preserving Jonathan, if the Lord preserved Jonathan. And if not Jonathan, he was going to preserve Jonathan's offspring. So he'd already made that commitment. So even with a crazy man, I'll agree to do what the crazy, violent, vicious, wicked man wants if it's in accord with the will of God. Why not? So you just accept these nutty circumstances you've got. You make the best of it, but look at the next phrase. Then Saul went home, but, 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 David and his men they didn't, go back to the, they didn't go back to Saul's house. I don't trust Saul any further than I can throw him. David didn't trust him. So David was wise. He knew that Saul would do this again. So he, he makes whatever superficial, temporary peace can be made. David takes what he can get with a crazy man out of the deal. He accepts what he's got. Then David goes back to the stronghold and he protects himself appropriately. Now you say, isn't this a violation of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, where Paul says we should that love trusts all things. Well, here's the tension. Real love requires that we desire to trust each other at the deepest level. So if I love you, I'm always looking for ways to trust you. However, if you're not trustworthy, then love does not demand that I give you something that will help you be wicked. For example, if if I want to trust my four- or five-year-old son with a gun, which I do eventually want to trust him with a gun, I'm not giving it to him at four and five. He'll shoot his foot off or something, or my foot. So I'm not giving him the gun. We'll talk about it later when he's able to be trusted. But you wouldn't say I'm violating love toward my son because I didn't trust him with a gun when he's four. No, I trust him with what's appropriate for his welfare. It's not appropriate for Saul's welfare, David's welfare, anybody's welfare, that David would entrust his life to Saul. Saul's a crazy, wicked man. So keep your guard up because you are the Lord's anointed. You have 600 men to protect, and you've got a family back there, and you're supposed to take charge of this country eventually. So protect yourself reasonably and learn and stay on the lamb until Saul's life is ended. So you'll notice that we accept the reality and accept whatever superficial agreements are made, even with wicked people, but we're wise about it. We're not fooled. We're not naive. We're not stupid. We have the discernment of Christ. We're, we're His people. And then notice verse 25a we, of 1a. We didn't read this, but look at this verse. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Now... Sometimes people were buried in their house. When they were, it didn't become a 
a monument. Uh, so Samuel probably directed that his body just go right under his house so that there was no to be no memorial or monument there. But nonetheless, our point is that David does his business with or without his mentors, and so do you. We do the will of God with or without our mentors, and if you have older mentors, they're probably not going to be here as long as you are. So you get from them what you can get. You learn from them what you can learn. And then when they go on, you go on. And you do your work. And you be somebody else's mentor. And so on and so forth. So while you've got mentors, you use them. And David used Samuel. He loved Samuel. He revered Samuel. He got wisdom from Samuel. And old Samuel dies, and David's going to go right on. He's gotten the benefit from being a protege under Samuel, and he'll continue to learn those lessons and to use them. And so must we. Now look at chapter 26 quickly, and let's see here another interesting situation. Chapter 26, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel, here we go again, to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay. With Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army, Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within in the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then said Abishai to David, I'm sure in a very soft whisper, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke to the spear of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now take the spear that is at the head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. 
If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. And David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Okay, seven times in chapters 24 and 26. Seven times. David speaks of Saul as the Lord's anointed. Do you get the point? If God has rights over someone, and He does with everybody around you, they're made in His image, they're His property, He made them, you don't have a right of life and death over them. The only time we ever take a life is when it's under God's command. He has the right to that. The only time we ever hate anybody is when He tells us to hate them. And right now He's told you to hate no one except Satan. And He'll take care of the hate at the end of the day. So we defer all that to Him. And you look at the behavior here that comes out of it. And here's what we learn in chapter 26. Our enemies provide us multiple opportunities to display godly character. you got a wicked person in your life, a crazy person in your life. You've had an encounter with, with that person. Good, you'll probably have several more. You'll have many opportunities to display Christian character through these folks. And there's a reason for this. God is displaying His character. In the midst of the darkness, the light shines in the darkness. That's what Advent is all about. Christ comes to shine light in darkness. That's what you're supposed to be doing, and me, I'm supposed to be doing. Number one, notice in verses 1 through 7, we become bolder. With these multiple opportunities, we're supposed to be getting better, bolder. So now David, instead of just experiencing God's providence and bringing a guy who wants to take a dump in a cave... And then deciding whether he's going to kill Saul. No, look, now he's bolder. David himself takes his nephew, Abishai. They go into the camp themselves. He's pursuing Saul now. And David has confidence that God's going to protect him. I mean, it's amazing. So one encounter leads to a better encounter the next time around. We become bolder. Notice secondly, B, verses 8 through 12. We become more trusting in God's providence. David has already seen God's providence at work in Saul's bowel movement. Now, he's, look how he speaks to Abishai. He says in verse 9, Do not destroy him, for who can put his hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Then look at the reasoning in verse 10. It's a reasoning from God's will and God's providence. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come to die. That is, he'll die of old age. Or... He'll die in battle, which is exactly what happens. And David says, hey, look, I've been around now long enough to know the Lord has a lot of options. Use your imagination. And David's faith gives him an imagination to see in multiple ways that God can deal with Saul. David doesn't have to 
let Abishai take the sword, the spear, and spear Saul's head. There's so many ways to do this without violating Christian ethics. And so we become more trusting in God's providence to handle not only the end that we be vindicated, but to handle the means, the ways in which we'll be vindicated. Look at verses 13 through 16. See, we become more caring of our adversaries. David says to Abner, Abner, are you not going to take care of your own king? I took better king of Saul, I took better care of Saul today than you did. And David's dead serious. David is taking care of the Lord's anointed. Abner is not. He's sleeping. He's supposed to be awake. So there's a little bit of taunting, of course, that's going with this. But you can see David's character. He's even challenging his enemies to take care of their king. And then look at D, verses 17 through 24. We become stronger in our beliefs. So as you walk with the Lord, you'll find you actually deepen your faith in the convictions that you have when you're using them in practice. Number one, verses 17 through 19, we see more clearly the evil of our adversaries. David here in verse 19 says, Saul, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up, may He accept an offering from me. I'll I'll go make a sacrifice to Him. I'll give a gift to appease the Lord if He's the one who stirred you up. But Saul, if it's human beings who have done it, I'm so confident of what I'm saying to you, I pronounce a curse on them. May they be cursed. They're wicked. So this is very strong language. And you can see that David now is in a position to say that with knowledge and assurance. He knows what he's talking about. And he can be even bolder in the way that he speaks about his adversaries. Um, And uh, David then uses also a theological argument in that same text. You see he's saying, may they be cursed because, look at verse 19, he says, uh, they have driven me out out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. He says, Saul, do you realize the implications of what you're doing? When you're pursuing a brother, when you're treating a brother unjustly, like you are, you're as well as saying to him, why don't you go be a Muslim? Why don't you be a Hindu? Why don't you choose another religion? This one's not going to work for you because I'm out after you. Saul, do you realize the wickedness of what you're doing? So you see how David's arguments now are even deeply theological. They're spiritual. And it's because he's lived in this and he's walked with the Lord in it and he's seeing the Lord's perspective more and more on this second occasion of confronting Saul. And notice in verse uh, uh, 20 and 21, secondly, we lose none of our humility. So David says, Has the king of Israel come to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains? A little bird? Saul, what are you doing? So he, he loses none of his humility. And thirdly, we trust the Lord to vindicate us. And he believes this even more strongly. And David doesn't say to Saul, May my life be held in high esteem by you and all of your court. No, very simply, May my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may He deliver me out of all tribulation. Gentlemen, if you have to have somebody's favor, if you have to have compliments from them, 
you cannot serve them. You cannot be God's man to them. You can't display Christian character. Let your pleasure simply be finding pleasure in the presence of God. You're seeking to please Him, to be precious in His sight. It's a lonely business. Then E, verse 25a, we become stronger in our reputation. Even Saul says, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. Right, Saul. Even Saul can't help but pronounce a benediction on David. Entrust your reputation to the Lord. Let Him do His work in other people's lives. If you're to have a positive reputation, let the Lord bring that about. Don't you go manipulating it and trying to achieve it through selfish, prideful, fleshly means. The end of a good reputation does not justify the means of selfish manipulation or marketing or anything else about you. Just leave that with the Lord. We become stronger as we go on because we learn how to trust the Lord more with it. And then lastly, verse 25b, we become more content in our loneliness. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. David is without Samuel. He's without the favor of the king Saul. And right here are the last words that David and Saul will ever say to each other. This is their last meeting. He'll never speak to him again. But David will go on to serve the Lord. Look, the only company you really need is the Lord. Trust Him. He's really the only one you need. And when you have Him, you will then be building healthy relationships with those who want mutually trusting relationships, and you'll build healthy relationships with those who are not trustworthy. All you can do is control your side of the equation. You can't control the relationship. But you will be God's man in every relationship when you find yourself content to have Him and sometimes Him alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for this great lesson from chapters 24 and 26, and we ask that You'll help us to glean from this what we need today so desperately to display Your character in the midst of evil that takes place all around us every week of our lives. Help us to be Your men. We know that's why Jesus came, was to destroy death and to destroy evil. And we pray that we may be your agents today and in the days to come. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.